0: G'day and welcome to Birth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, And in this episode, I'm really excited to be sharing with you some of the framework and I guess foundation for all of our future episodes. I'm going to be going deep into the thinking behind setting a property investment strategy for yourself. Now, the episode's a little long and I do get pretty in depth, but I wanted to take you back to first principles on how to set a destination for where you're going, how to then think about the different levels of financial security and freedom and how to then start to create that investment strategy and understanding the trade-offs between capital growth and income-producing suburbs and then thinking about the typical lifestyle cycle and lifestyle i see for property investors and how the strategy fits into that and finally i touch on you know should everyone think about becoming a property developer and who that's right for and what are some of the ways that adding value can form part of that strategy and that's leading into some of our future episodes where we'll be bringing in experts on various ways to add value to property. And so, I really want you to get this foundation right on choosing a strategy so you can start to think about how all these pieces fit together and what's right and best for you. So, let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So the Perth property market's back to doing really well and that means on a daily basis I'm getting asked again by investors, where should I buy and or should I buy in this particular suburb that they've got in mind? And I always go back to them and ask a few questions and for some investors this can be frustrating because I'm not appearing to be giving them a straight answer but anyone that goes and just sprouts off single suburbs, Dubai, often is a sprooker and has a hidden agenda for that suburb. I have a view across the whole of Perth, 200-plus suburbs we manage in, and so I've got a very close finger on the pulse of what's going on at any time, and I understand at a very high picture that what's going to work for one person is definitely not going to work for other, others. And you really need to customise your approach to investing to suit you so the questions I go back with is what's your budget which most investors can answer by speaking to a finance broker or their bank and what's your strategy and most investors can't answer that second question so they often have a blank face or they come back at me and say what do you mean by strategy So this is what separates the accidental investors that might go past a property that's near their house on the way home, see a for sale sign, think, oh, yeah, that's uh, well located. I know the area seems to be a good asking price. I think I might buy it as a rental property. And so they go ahead, they stick within their comfort zone and they never really have a larger plan to things they never really have a strategy for how this property fits into that so the goal of my podcast here is to make everyone more of an intentional investor to have that destination in mind and then choose the strategy suburb and property to fit that so that's where what we're going to go into in this episode Now, before you even think about setting a strategy, you need to have some idea of that destination. Otherwise, it'd be like setting off in your car, like this person did that I mentioned, on a journey with no idea where you're going and how do you even weigh up which turns to take and if you're on track and if you're going to be there on time for your retirement or not. Now, most people think when they start to think about what do they actually want to achieve from investing? The words that kind of come up is financial security or financial freedom, but what does that mean? I guess for me, financial security and freedom is about replacing that actively earned income from your job with a passively earned income, and that can be through business, property, or portfolio, shares, bonds, derivatives, etc. And a really good financial planner will help you Take your end of mind and work backwards, and you need to make sure that you're using one that understands property and you know map out the different phases of your life. But I'm going to take you through some of the goals and basic thinking that I have for the different stages of financial security and freedom. So that I mean, when you go to a financial planner, they're going to ask you what you want. So you still have to be in the driving seat, if you will, of your own vehicle. Otherwise, you're going to be driving to other people's plans so how much do you need ultimately to get to that place of financial security and freedom it's the million dollar question isn't it so for me financial security is the first layer and that's where you get a passive income to cover all your base living expenses and that includes things like your rent and or your loan interest or if you've paid off your home it wouldn't you wouldn't have that in there Covers all your base living costs, insurance, et cetera, healthcare. And for us in our household, we know this figure to be 80,000 per annum, and that's after tax. So, approximately 100,000 before tax to cover our base security and survival. So, it's really good to know that figure as well, because if your partner's going to go off on maternity leave, you need to know what your minimum take home is to cover those things and still survive. Otherwise, you're going to have to make a lot of changes and change that living, that lifestyle. Now, it can also help if you ever get sick and, you know, it can help with knowing what insurances to, to set up for income protection, et cetera. So that's an important number, the financial security level. Now, the next level I like to call financial freedom and that's where you'd also have money for entertainment and travel and for us that figure is $400 a week each or $40,000 per year total. Now, that's modest entertainment, modest travel, not extravagant by any means. So when we add that to the financial security level, which was $80,000 after tax, we now are, are at $120,000 after tax or one fifty dollars approximately before tax. So financial freedom, one fifty dollars before tax for our household. Now, the next layer or level above that is what I call financial abundance. Now, all these levels can include different things. I'm just giving you the examples of how I think about them and a really nice way of breaking it down so that you've got, you know, the lower level to head to first. You achieve that. You feel like you're getting, you know, somewhere in your journey and then you go about replacing the next level now these amounts can obviously change over time but yeah you need a destination you need somewhere to head off to first so financial abundance level what does that include that includes for us extravagant holidays a year for an extra 50000 been pretty bloody hard to take the moment with covid but I'm saving that money <laughs> it includes for us helping family for 10000 a year charities at 10000 a year education personal education for us both at 10000 a year so would add 80,000 on to our other levels and that takes us to a total of 200,000 after tax for us or 270 to 300,000 before tax. So once you get those figures you can start looking at how is your overall you know situation going to provide that passive income through business, property and portfolio. So today I'm going to primarily focus on the property side but I'm a huge advocate of obviously business and setting that up to be passive and portfolio definitely has its place and can be stronger depending on which how close to retirement you are and and definitely encourage you to speak to financial planner to find the right mix for you now those numbers can seem pretty freaking daunting and they were for me when I first set them out and I've been working with mine for you know 10-15 years now since I started to really get clear on where I was headed. And, you know, back when I worked out that I probably am going to need, you know, if the average property is giving 20000 a year, you'd need to own five properties outright for that first level of financial security. Outright. So that's a lot. And we're then going to try and cover the financial freedom level. You'd need approximately eight properties outright. And this is including the tax amounts that I mentioned to cover. And this is for my situation as I was laying out to you. Uh, Or finally, you'd need 15 properties outright to cover the financial abundance level. So between 5 and 15 properties, depending on how much passive income you want to cover. That's pretty daunting, isn't it? 5 to 15. But... If you don't know those numbers, you're not going to be thinking big enough from the beginning to develop a good enough strategy to educate yourself and take the actions needed to get there. And over time, it starts to become less daunting. And as compounding of your experience and your money takes place, you'll end up you know, much further along than you ever thought possible and suddenly it all starts to seem possible. Now, the reason I really wanted to put this up there in my first few episodes is a lot of investors get stuck at the one or two properties. I think the stat 70% of investors own one property, another 20%-odd own two properties or less. So 90-odd percent of investors in Australia only own two properties. So what does that say for their chances of replacing their income with passive income, not very high. So you really need to be setting your sights higher and you really need to be working towards a bigger portfolio of owning properties outright, or you need to hope that you win the lotto or hope that you've got a business that's at, you know growing with a lot of value as well to add to this mix. But for most people, property and or shares are the two main things and you know, property is what most of us trust. So, there's two main phases to building up this portfolio of 5 to 15 properties. And I like to break it down into the two phases, and they're very distinct. So, the first one is where we're building capital, and that's where we are focused on getting growth. It's very important for our properties to be growing. We need to be using that increase in equity to fund our deposits for other purchases to build that portfolio out so that we've got enough you know, properties being exposed for long enough in the market to get the growth that we need. And if you're going to own five properties outright, you might need to own, say, eight or nine properties. And then as you move towards the next phase, you can start to look at selling some paying down debt, and potentially buying some higher income producing properties. So that brings me to the next phase, which is the transitioning your capital across to income. So we'll touch on that in a minute. But to own this many properties outright, you need to understand compounding. And it's an amazing wonder of the world. And without it, the task would be probably too daunting for most of us to do it. But with compounding, Einstein called it, I think, the eighth wonder of the world. You really need to get your head around the power of this. So let's take a little example, put some numbers to it. If you had one cent and it doubled every day for 30 days, how much do you think it'll be worth by day 30? So that's one cent doubling every day. In your head, you often don't think it's going to be worth that much. You might think, you know, $5, $10, something like that. It's really, really hard for us to think as humans exponentially. So compounding works at this exponential level. And for instance, in the case of this example, by day 10 you'd have $5.12 so nothing that impressive but if it kept doubling every day then by day 20 you'd have $5,242.88 so that's getting up there day 25 167,772 and day 30 you'd have 5,368,709 that's incredible it's it's mind-boggling what a high rate of return over a long period of time can do for your growth so what i specifically take from that example is yes it's very hard to have a rate of return that's doubling but the sooner you start investing and the higher you can consistently achieve a good return the sooner you'll be i guess at your destination of replacing your income with a passive income. So you've got to start early enough. You've got to find the high enough and consistent enough return. And then once you've grown your capital base up, you get to the second phase where income is the key. And we're converting our capital base into passive income to replace the active income. We pay down some debts. We add some higher income properties or other assets and we trade off potentially having some lower growth of our overall portfolio, but in favour of income. So the question then becomes when we start out on this journey, what strategies can we adopt to achieve that consistent and high growth rate in our capital base in the first phase over the long term in order to acquire those 15, 5 to 15 properties outright? So how can we achieve a consistent and high rate of growth in our capital over the long term to get to that 5 to 15. So after 20 odd years of immersing myself in property investment and learning as much as possible and 12 years of having my property investment real estate agency, I've seen a lot of things and I've learned a lot of things and I've seen strategies that work really well for some people and Also, same strategy for a different person. They completely balls it up and lose money and just apply it all wrong and try to do everything themselves. So I've seen what works for our clients. I've also made a lot of mistakes myself. And I can tell you that after all that, there's no one way that works for everyone. And there's many paths to that destination of replacing your income with passive income. So... How do we start to set that strategy for you? I can tell you, first of all, what doesn't work. It's easier for me to tell you what doesn't work or works very, very slowly and it's not going to get you there, you know, before the time that you're ready for retirement. So in my experience from everything that I've seen, buying new properties in far-out areas is a very bad strategy for achieving this high growth consistently buying in large complexes of high density apartments is also a very bad strategy for achieving high growth consistently because in both of these situations you have oncoming and ongoing supply of more land more apartments that are always competing with it and what how does growth come about when demand exceeds supply And that's just the fundamental of economics there. So in these types of properties, you never get that strong pressure in demand to give you the growth. So that's why I generally suggest focusing on areas that have uniqueness, areas that are established, that have the amenities, that have the proven history that you can look into. So when you look at what property brokers and builders usually sell, what what do they sell? They sell exactly this. That's where you can pick them from a mile if you find out their strategy and they'll have all the justifications for it in the world. But ultimately, they're selling this because it gives them more business and because they get inflated commissions for doing so. So stay away from anything that is brand new. The side note to that, is if you're creating and developing that brand new thing then that is worth considering but obviously not at the expense of the area that you're doing it in we'll get a touch on that a bit more later so when we start to look at suburb selection with all of this in mind and if growing your capital is your primary goal to begin with you also need to give I guess, a bit of consideration to the income, which should be a secondary goal. What income are you going to achieve on that property? And where does that leave you for holding costs after all your expenses are taken into account? Because unfortunately, I've seen way too many investors, especially over the last five years, that have had to sell their properties in difficult times of the market. And this is usually the worst possible time to sell. And they walk away thinking that you can't make money investing in property and they'll sadly never try again so it's horrible to see when someone has to is forced to sell financial for financial reasons and it definitely leads leaves a bad taste in their mouth and they're unlikely to ever be back in the game again so you need to give consideration to the holding cost of the property and you need to put buffers in place preferably and you need to factor in increases in interest over time keeping in mind that rents are also going to increase for us in the next two three years so we're in a pretty good position at the moment to have both increasing together both rents and interest will come back in due course give consideration to the holding costs of the property take into account your rates your your water your property management costs your maintenance costs and you know if it's going to be costing you and if you can afford that when things start to come back, run a few scenarios of interest changing. So that said, the primary goal for me should always be growth. Secondary consideration or goal is income. And you've got to understand the trade-offs between the two. So anyone that says that you can get high growth and high rental income, it's either extremely difficult to achieve that or they're not telling you the true trade-offs to things now i'm going to bring some guests on in the future that might contradict that but i'd love to hear what they have to say about it and why but typically we see that the higher income yielding properties that are getting the six to eight percent rental returns per year have lower long-term average growth rates and they're typically in the three to four percent for growth. So when you add that up, you might be at, you know, 10 to 12% overall total return, but six to eight percent of it is rental income and three to four percent is capital growth. And this is averages over the long term. Obviously, when we're at this stage of the cycle in Perth, I'm expecting that nearly every suburb will do really well and likely see 30 to 50% growth over the next two to three years. But I'm expecting the prime suburbs will grow towards the top end of that band and over the long term they're going to grow at a higher rate. So on the more premium side suburbs, the investment grade suburbs, they tend to have a bit of the opposite of return to what the the returns are switched. So you typically see 3 to 4% Rental returns and six to eight percent growth rates. So that's almost the opposite. In the first case of the strong rental suburbs, six to eight percent and three to four percent for growth. In the premium investment grade areas where capital growth has a strong history and strong demand for those suburbs, three to four percent income per year, six to eight percent average growth per year. So over the long term, holding a higher growth property can make a massive difference to the capital you accumulate. So that's why I'm all in favour of trying to buy in as well-located area as you can. Now, here's a bit of an example to get your head around it. Take the case of a lower growth Property increasing at let's say three point five percent, and that's the middle of that range that I gave before of three to four percent. Let's take three and a half percent average annual capital growth rate. Now a four hundred grand property, let's say, would turn into five hundred and sixty four thousand in ten years. That's a gain of one hundred and sixty four thousand. So not too bad. Property hasn't done anything, you know, drastic, but. And keep in mind, this is the average over a 10-year period. any two to three years, it might grow significantly, but then it's probably going to not do much for the rest of that period. That's what I generally expect with these outer areas. So now when we look at the higher growth property, I'm using the same purchase price, but keep in mind in Perth, the lower growth property might be at 300,000 and the higher growth property might actually be at six or seven or 800,000, but I'm going to use the same purchase price. Just wrap your head around the difference that the growth rates can make to the same overall purchase price. So let's take 6.5% as the average annual growth rate on this high, in this higher growth area. And that's going to take your $400,000 purchase and turn it into $750,000 in 10 years, after 10 years. So that's a gain of three fifty, dollars nearly doubled your money over that 10 years. And you can see that it's nearly doubled the gain, $164,000 gain in the first instance and $350,000 gain in the second instance. Now, I can almost hear. The big supporters of strong income, high income areas saying, "But Jared, but Jared, you have a higher income along the way. Well yes, you do, and it does make holding the property easier, but you do have to pay tax on that income, keep in mind. And so you're not left with as much to put back into your investments as you may think. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not a supporter of negative gearing for negative gearing's sake. And I definitely think that the income needs to be given consideration. But if I had to choose where to focus, I need to grow my capital base. And so, therefore, I need higher growth to do that. And I'm not going to get to that 5 to 15 properties owned outright by going the route of high income. So, my preference is to be somewhere in the middle of these two or if you've got a stable strong income and strong saving power and you can handle more negative cash flow or slightly negative then i would be moving more towards this investment grade type property in a well-located premium area because that's going to get you your growth and get you your capital base to increase and ultimately get you to your destination faster you'd have to own a lot more income focused properties hell of a lot more than 5 to 15 you might have to own 30 just to get you know to grow your capital base because the growth on that on those type of properties is a lot lower over the long term you're not going to get the power of the compounding that takes effect as much as it does on the higher growth properties so look i usually advise investors to buy in as well located suburb as they can afford to hold for the long term and that means first of all knowing what your borrowing capacity is which lead led me to my first question at the start of this episode and then also then thinking about your ability to save and put towards your investing so if you've got a strong saving power you might want to save more to get into those better areas and you just need to give consideration to how much extra you do save and when you get into the market so if for instance you had a lower speed of saving You may want to get into the Perth market sooner to make the most of the up cycle that we're about to have in two to three years because if you spend the next three years saving, you're going to miss the cycle entirely. And of course, getting some growth is far better than getting no growth and sitting on the sideline. So when you're going about choosing a suburb, you can look into the history from the various data providers and see what the capital growth rates have been. In the past 10 20 30 years now it's no point looking over one year or five years you really need to be in my opinion looking at at least 20 years or 30 years and that'll give us an indication of what the future growth potential has been providing that the suburbs still popular and in demand for the same reasons it has been in the past and then you can start to overlay some of the other factors that will likely improve the expectations for capital growth in an area. And that's basically things that are going to improve a suburb's desirability. So is there new transport plans such as train stations or upgrades to roads that would significantly make the area more accessible? Is there nearby jobs planned that would have people want to move into the area is there an increase in amenities and cafes and you know these types of things that uh, are going to improve lifestyle and is the area gentrifying so are older houses being extended and renovated and upgraded and you know are people putting money into their homes and I think you'll find that more often than not this is going to be in the more established areas that do have the proven history as well so when you can put some of those extra factors on top, then your chances for growth in the future are going to be a lot higher. Now, what's the typical path I see that investors take? And what can you, I guess, have as a bit of a roadmap when you're starting out? Because it can be all very daunting. And for me, it was as well. You know, just when you're going about trying to make your first investment property purchase, I'd suggest getting as educated as possible. And that's what I did. and. Then you start out buying in the areas that you can afford, the best located area that you can afford. And very often you'd be renting a better lifestyle elsewhere. And I guess that's called rent vesting. So you're renting the lifestyle that you can't necessarily afford while you're getting into the market for investment. You then use those equity gains on one, two properties to potentially buy a family home. Now, I did skip a step there. You've met the love of your life. You've got engaged, potentially getting married, and you start to have kids on the radar. Now, having kids on the radar, or and certainly when they're born, starts to change everything, and it did for us. So we've got a two-year-old. It gets you thinking about a whole range of things you'd never thought you would, such as where's my... Kid going to go to school? How am I going to give them a better lifestyle than I had? So there becomes that need to upgrade your home and get some more stability, get out of the renting or get out of uh, the area that you might have originally bought for your home and head towards where is the best schooling. Now, we've decided to want to live in the best public school zone. So I don't have to spend the money on private school and I'd rather spend it on my house, but that choice is going to be different for everyone. And I guess the schools has driven that, that decision greatly. And you'll notice when you go deeper that the areas with this proven history of capital growth are often very much correlated with where the good schools are. So you might renovate a house or two along the way. You might renovate your family home. You might renovate one of these first two purchases. Get some of that experience under your belt so that you've become familiar with property, you know what's involved. When you renovate, you do increase the equity of the property and the rental price achievable and also the quality of tenant achievable. And you set it up to go on the shelf and be as stable and quiet as possible. (laughs) Quiet. You set yourself up for a smooth run with having tenants. So As you get that more experience in property, you can start to overlay some of the more active strategies to add value. And if time's precious to you like it is for me and many of our clients, you build a team of experts around you and you start being more intentional about your suburb selection and choosing your time when you get in the market. I've invested in other states and other cities around Australia and having been through the number of cycles now, I know how important this timing aspect is. I never really understood before just how important it is. So we've really got... A great opportunity in front of us with Perth going into its upswing, but that's obviously not always the case. You be intentional about when you buy and you, be, you start to overlay some of the more ways to add value. Now, this experience all starts to compound too. And after going through a number of cycles, you build that strong capital base and you can use that to expand your portfolio. And before you know it, the 5 to 15 properties we spoke about earlier is a lot more readily achievable and can potentially be within sight. So don't seem daunted when you're starting out. Take one step first, buying in the most affordable, well-located areas you can. Consider doing some renovation uh, cosmetically to it and uh, grow your experience, compound your experience, and as you compound your time in the market, you'll also open up those options for building a whole portfolio. So I touched on adding value in there in that typical path and and I really wanted to open up the conversation on how to think about this. So if you want to grow your capital without relying on the market, many investors have done very well over the last few years by adding value through things like renovating and subdividing and building and all of which can be called property development. So these are the more active strategies that can accelerate your growth. They do require a lot more money, skill, time, potentially, or a team of experts in order to be successful. So is adding value for everyone, and I tend to say that it's definitely not. A lot of investors chase the sexiness of doing a property development without actually knowing what they're doing, and they end up buying in an inferior suburb or an inferior location And they make a lot of mistakes and they lose a lot of money and they end up hating property to the point that they think that it can't work for them and they never do it again. Real shame. And many would have just been way better off sticking to a more passive strategy and buying in a quality area with a proven history of the growth that we spoke about and holding on for the long term. So, And obviously, if you can take a few things more into account like the cycles and making sure you buy well when you're purchasing, then you can consider doing that cosmetic renovation or getting renovation manager or someone else to do it, and that's going to give you the best bang for your buck. So I certainly favour the simple approach in a quality suburb over doing a property development in a bad area that may give you 15% return on investment in year one if you do your development well then a much lower return over the next 20 to 30 years. And you, and so I don't believe that trade-off on area is worth making. You've really got to keep the quality of your location as the the primary goal because, you, you know, growth over one year is nothing compared to the 20 or 30 years that follow. And you have to think longer term. It's really hard when you're starting out to think with that kind of time horizon. I get it. I'm only really just getting my head into the much longer game now so joint ventures are great and it's a way that i got started in property teaming up with parents and friends combining your resources together so when i started i didn't have the capital so i got the money from others but i brought the motivation and the project management and pulled it all together and you know we both split the profits and it can be done in many different ways. But the downside that I didn't get to joint venturing is that while it's a good way to build capital, you can't really hold properties together for the long term because your situations are likely to change. It's likely that you're not going to have goals in alignment. The longer the time that you hold something, the more your situations change and someone needs to sell and get out. So usually the plan when doing a joint venture is to sell on completion and you don't always appreciate, and I certainly didn't until I'd done a few property developments. How much is in you know you lose in paying tax, and how much you lose by being out of the market and not getting that compounding that uh, you might have had if you just bought something passively in a well-located area and held it for you know over the decades. So. People can be very busy and very active doing joint ventures, doing property developments, but what are they left with? That's what you need to be looking through to. So even if you are doing property developments to chunk up and gain capital and build your money up so you can invest more by yourself, the end goal still needs to be quality properties over the long term. So in summary, for most investors, especially those starting out, I suggest you buy in those best located areas you can afford Do a cosmetic renovation or get someone else to manage that for you if you, you know, do want to put a bit more time into adding value to a property and you hold for the long term. And if you do want to go into some of the adding value things such as subdivision and building and other forms of property development, I'm going to be bringing in some of the experts I know in Perth to share with you their insider experience over the coming episodes because, you know, the, those strategies are not to be taken lightly, but they can really accelerate your path to financial freedom if you do surround yourself with the right team. And so I really want you to go into it with open eyes, see some of the mistakes, see what is truly involved from a time and uh, money point of view you know, when you feel like you've, you're up to it, when you've got the experience, you know, you'll be much likely, more likely to succeed. So I'll see you next time on the inside.